Hello and welcome back to State of Mind with me, Grace Kingswell. I hope you all had a lovely Christmas, all things considered, and are ready to tackle the new year with renewed vigour. I'm not really sure if that's possible given the circumstances, but we'll try. So today's guest is psychosexual and relationship therapist, Kate Moyle. Kate works with people to recognize their own personal understanding of their sexuality and their sexual health, with the view that our issues have roots in psychology, emotion, the physical body, and a person's history and their culture. Ultimately, Kate's aim is to help people to get to a place of sexual health, happiness, and well-being. In this episode, we discuss sex tech, porn, libido and fertility, among many other topics. It's a fascinating listen and my thanks goes out to Kate for taking the time to educate us all with her wisdom on what is a very important topic. Kate is on Instagram at Kate Moyle Therapy and she hosts her own podcast too called The Sexual Wellness Sessions. I hope you enjoy the episode. So you are a psychosexual therapist. Firstly, um, can you explain to us what that is and tell us how you came to be one? Yeah, so a psychosexual therapist is essentially a talking therapist or a psychotherapist specifically dealing with sexual and relationship issues. So I'm a separately qualified relationships and couples therapist. I'm also a psychosexologist, which um, was a qualification that I gained earlier this year which is also about understanding that kind of branching across from the medical and physical and biological to the psychological um, and kind of studying sex and relationships, I suppose, which is something I am absolutely fascinated by. Um, But really it's about people being able to come to talking therapy and knowing that sex is very much kind of on the agenda of conversation, that they can talk about it, that they don't need to skirt around it and particularly people who are having problems specifically about sex and relationships Mm. and as strange as this sounds it's something that I've always wanted to do always been fascinated um in I've always been always wanted to be a a psychologist or um, a therapist or a counsellor and I started investigating kind of going down that route and I knew what I didn't want to do but I wasn't quite sure about what I did. And then I um, started kind of looking into it. And for me, it was also the impact on the rest of our lives. So the idea that a sexual problem could be something that is happening behind the scenes and nobody might know about, but changing that could be like turning a key in a lock that nobody knows is there. And it opens the door to so much other stuff. And that is absolutely the experience that I've had in this work as well. And why do you think it is that we are so reluctant to talk about sex? I think so much of it is historical. I think, you know, a lot goes back to kind of previous, you know, times and generations where religion played a huge part and sex was very much something kind of sacred or uh, very much something that was kind of for within marriage, so to speak. And I think we've always divided sex up into kind of like good sex and bad sex, so kind of like allowed sex and kind of taboo sex. And I think that it's also because it's had this kind of taboo nature and it's been through different stages, you know, 
religious kind of context, cultural context, you know, Victorian times. And then now we're in this time where the internet is the biggest almost influence on our lives, as terrifying as that is to say. And suddenly sex is accessible um, instantly, kind of without limitation. It's available. And suddenly we can almost have too much information about it or not necessarily the correct information. And everyone always jokes that we're kind of very British, stiff upper lip about it. But I, I think that it's just always been a taboo subject and no generation has been able to shift it because they've never had the tools. They've never had the context. There's never been inclusivity. It's never been kind of really on the education agenda. And so no one, at no point have we really enabled the conversation about it and we're getting there now but I think it's also to do with the fact that we've historically really split gender roles we've really split kind of men and women and we have you know even in some countries being gay is still illegal and punishable by death horrendously in some countries so we have never really had an accepting sexual society yeah, it's really interesting. I want to start by talking about sex and long-term relationships. Asking for a friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> what would you say is the sort of one most common thing that you've learned about sex and long-term relationships um, from your therapy room over the over the last few years? I would say the biggest learning that I think I have as a professional is that desire changes. And I think probably that's what most people kind of presenting with would also say. But the biggest problem is from a kind of clinical perspective or, you know, if um, I was sitting in the client chair, would be how we understand those changes or the meaning we take from those changes or how we think about ourselves in relation to those changes. Mm. And by that, you mean the sort of change in libido and the frequency, with, you know, that we want to have sex or something different? So most couples or a huge percentage of couples in long term relationships talk about a decline in the amount of sex they're having or the regularity of sex they're having. And but what we understand is that actually the amount of sex we're having isn't a good indicator or measure of a sex life isn't a good measure of relationship satisfaction isn't a good measure of sexual satisfaction um but it's the only kind of objective measure that we have and what inevitably happens as we know the longer we settle into anything whether it's a relationship a job a um you know gym class routine or schedule is it becomes routine, it becomes known, we settle in, we get established, we don't have to think about it as much. And what that becomes is a bit of a challenge for our sex lives, which thrive on novelty, the unknown, the exciting. And we have this almost exchanging out in long-term relationships of getting to know someone, excitement, exploration, anticipation, curiosity for stability, you know, regularity, routine, safety, comfort. And 
those are the things that we need in long-term relationships for them to be sustainable. You know, we, we intimately connect with someone and stay connected with them, but those things don't make desire mm. thrive. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to a podcast that you interviewed on um, the other day and something you said really stuck with me, which is, I think it was that the um, the unknown or or the... Yeah, that the unknown was, or our imagination, I think it was, is the best form of, you know, sparking desire. Pornography that we have. Yeah, something like that. And you're so right that when you are in a long-term relationship, all of those unknown factors just disappear. Um, so how do we do, how do we bring, bring back in a sense of, of the unknown and the kind of, not necessarily the exciting, but just, you know, that the, the kind of newness that we crave at the beginning of a relationship? Are there ways that we can invite that back in when we've been with someone for a really long time? I think that the biggest gift that we can have for relationships and creating desire in long-term relationships is creativity and curiosity and you know we hear a lot about this idea of like date nights and like scheduling things and you know what I never prescribe my clients is scheduling sex but scheduling time for touch for intimacy for hand holding for eye contact for conversation for ways of connecting and the reality is we're all guilty of it you know and even, you know, us as professionals, you know, I'm talking about this for a living and I find myself doing it sometimes, is we forget to nurture the thing that's in front of us all the time. We forget to pay real attention to the person that's in front of us all the time. We get lazy or we just we just forget. And relationships need work. They need nurturing. You know, the one thing that we say about all successful relationships that correlates across couples is they work at it they don't expect it to be perfect all the time and you know one of the biggest um um one of the biggest kind of satisfying factors of relationships or markers of dissatisfaction in relationships is where expectations and reality don't match up and I think Mm -hmm. that I again quite often um say to people I'm working with every time you have sex change one thing you know it's not rocket science it's not about saying this will change everything but what it does is it just encourages you to you know be on the bed instead of in the bed or put the bedding on the floor or turn the lights on or lights off or start with your clothes on versus clothes off not the routine of this is how we do it and this is how we'll always do it because even just the oh what's going to happen next curiosity is enough Mm. to help promote change and stop us from standing still yeah yeah it's really it's a really good point um so to kind of flip the dialogue slightly um and talk about single people um how do you think because obviously covid is is so topical at the moment and i've really been thinking you know in your view as a professional how do you think covid and lockdown has affected those not in relationships I think it's been really hard for lots of people I think there's a flip side and you know I found myself talking doing lots of like media stuff um about people who had just had breakups or had breakups in COVID and was this like the best thing or the worst thing obviously you know there is no straightforward answer to that um Mm. but you know does it offer people time to be on their own and rest and recover or is the feeling of loss then even more difficult to cope with because you aren't surrounded by people who love you. And I think that 
it, there isn't a straightforward answer. It isn't one or the other. It's a, a really mixed bag for lots of people. Um, but I think that from the people I've spoken to anyway, and, you know, friends and family and things, it's been really tough. And I think the thing that it can do is highlight a sense of being on your own if you are feeling that way anyway. Whereas other people, it's been like, okay, great, it's taken the pressure off me. I can do everything I want to do on my own without feeling like I have to do things for anyone else. I can focus on me. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of people who have picked up a new skill during COVID or changed their exercise routine or, you know, developed something new for themselves. Or, and, you know, and I know the kind of analogy of like baking banana bread is one that, you know, everyone is talking about. Oh, yeah. But I think that, it's it depends on kind of a who you are but b where you're at and again you know the meaning that you make of the situation that you find yourself in and obviously if you are struggling with feeling alone or trying to meet someone or trying to move into a relationship then what it has done is it's put a halt and a pause on all of that or change the way that you do it and for those people that want an in real life, in-person relationship, it has involuntarily stopped that. And we talk about things like um, touch hunger, you know, people like craving touch, you know, wanting physical intimacy, wanting the touch mm. of another person. And I think that that is a, a real problem for lots of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I was certainly thinking about it this morning from a position of privilege um you know being married and then asking sort of girlfriends and stuff this morning um what would you want to know from a psychosexual therapist um you know let me know your questions now and, and that came up actually um from one of my girlfriends um and you know she sort of joked she was like oh I, I can tell you how it's been as, as a single person type thing um because obviously sex and touch and you know connectedness is just not on the menu right now and mm. the scary part is that it probably won't be for the foreseeable um so I want to talk about not to alienate any men listening to this podcast of course but I want to talk about women for a second because I feel like we have it really tough in sen in the sense that we're kind of up against our physiology a lot of the time when it comes to sex and intimacy because we have this amazing ability as women to um, multitask and to always have that mental to-do list and to actually not separate our physical sensation with our mental um, you know capacity and, and what's going on mentally. I think for women it's um, you know our, our brains and our bodies are so connected all the time and I get the sense that for men, it's slightly easier to kind of switch off the internal dialogue and just focus on what's going on between the sheets. But I know that as women and having spoken to girlfriends, you know, you're always thinking, um, what am I going to cook for supper? And, you know, it, those kind of thoughts shouldn't necessarily be popping into our head when we're trying to be intimate with our partner. Um, would you agree with that, that as as women, we sort of just have this tendency to not necessarily be able to be 100% in the moment all the time. And what do we do about that? I think it's a really interesting point because I think we see evidence for it 
in the rest of our lives all the time, you know. And I mean, the perfect example probably being people like mothers who were like, okay, well, I've always got one eye on this and one eye on that and thinking about that and what am I going to do next? And, and I think that it's perhaps a just a more way of being or perhaps the way we like set up our lives that we multitask more. And, you know, when we talk about multitasking, what it actually is is just kind of switching our attention between things really quickly rather than actually being able to do more than one thing at once. Um, I think that modern life sets us up to kind of be permanently doing that, you know, like phone in one hand, Instagram notification, got an email, phone's ringing, whilst working, whilst child caring, whilst cooking, whilst listening to a podcast, whilst trying to have a shower, you know, it's kind of constant. Um, we're not very one track minded anymore. And But then equally, I work with a lot of men who, when they are struggling with sex, cannot get out of their heads. And I think mm. that, you know, the difference a lot of the time being that what we see when men are really struggling with staying with them in the moment with sex or having anxiety around sex is the physical implications of that are, are a lot more obvious. So, for example, mm. erectile dysfunction, whereas for women, if they are struggling with their sexual headspace, you can't tell externally that they have less blood flow to their vagina and their vulva you can't tell instantly that they might be less lubricated or that um, they are kind of having less sensation and so that kind of I suppose male struggle can be more explicit but for women it can be more subjective and it might be okay, I'm so in my head that actually my partner's touching me and I don't really know what they're doing because I can't feel their sensations mm. or um, I'm not feeling fully relaxed or I'm not as kind of lubricated as I thought I should be. Or, mm. But I think that it's very common for women to struggle with and definitely one of the most common presenting issues that I know me and a lot of colleagues see is presenting with desire, and arousal and desire being the want to be sexual and arousal being the physical ability to be able to be sexual with the kind of body's preparation process for getting ready for sex and so a sort of disconnect between those two mm, absolutely but they they're like connected but obviously like different concepts and um but the I think that the desire piece quite often when I get to talking to women about it and I find is that this phrase kind of like, once I'm doing it, I enjoy it and I have a good time, but it's the getting to doing bit mm. that I struggle with. And so it's kind of like yeah. getting in that right headspace or that struggle with desire, I suppose. Yeah, and it's also stopping yourself from, and I do this all the time, you find an excuse, you find a reason that it's not a good time. You know, it's a, or like, try me tomorrow or I need to... Um, you're like I've just got out of the shower no like why would I you know there's so it's so easy to make excuses I feel um mm. and then you just sort of perpetuate that and it becomes again ingrained and and, and normal behavior and there'll always always be an excuse like we'll always be able yeah. to find one and I think that the distraction element is massive and that um, idea that we can be so easily distracted by stuff or we can be so easily taken out the moment 
And I think that is probably what a lot of women, probably more than men, but, you know, a lot of people, and particularly people struggling with anxiety, um, would say they really notice. Mm. So do we do we schedule it then? Or do we just open up the dialogue with our partner and talk about it? And because I think I think so much of our lives these days are scheduled, aren't they? Even if it's just like the sound of a notification going off on your phone, you won't ignore that because it's like a you know, it's like a very physical, like, oh, something's happening, I must respond. But I feel like with sex, it's something that you you know, it's not it. It's not necessarily in the forefront of our minds all the time, so it's easier to ignore. Um, do you? I mean, do you encourage your clients to schedule time in, or is that something that's a bit like dry? No, I don't think it's dry at all. I think that you're right. We schedule the rest of our lives. Why wouldn't we schedule some time for us to be together as a couple? What I don't mm-hmm. schedule is sex, but like I said earlier we schedule time for intimacy for touch for eye contact I mean for me um and I think you'll know this from the podcast but uh, the key ingredients for a good sex life for me are curiosity communication and lube yeah (laughs) and the communication part is so massive and I think what it is is finding the things that help us sexually the things that help us to switch off to turn on so whether it's changing the lighting whether it's being like okay I'm going to just spend 10 minutes writing everything down that I need to think about for tomorrow and then I won't know Mm. I know I don't have to think about it for the rest of this evening I'm going to have a shower I'm you know I did a campaign with this works the beauty brand and we launched the um love sleep range and they are functional fragrances for helping to promote intimacy within the bedroom and they have a pillow spray and a roll-on and a candle something like that the intentionality of using it Mm. is a big part of it you know you're intentionally creating cues which help you to think about sex more or think Mm. about intimacy more and it's not just the functional fragrance part of it but it's the psychology of getting excited about that evening or using something together And I think that there is a lot of that stuff that we don't recognise because the reality is sex can just fall to the bottom of our to-do list. You know, a bit, it can be a bit out of sight, out of mind, particularly for women. And Mm. I think that it can also be a bit like, I haven't had it for a week. Oh, well, it'll be another week. Oh, well. And that sense of us not having it can mean that we almost like forget to want it or need it as much because it becomes less present less important less kind of in our minds in our focus i'm just jumping in here to tell you about the sponsor of this episode we are samudra samudra is a sustainable activewear brand ethically manufactured in london from recycled ocean plastic when you buy a samudra piece you are not only investing into the slow fashion movement but you're helping marine environments and societies worldwide because samudra donate five percent of profits to female focused conservation projects they've chosen ocean swell organization based in sri lanka to be their charity that they donate to after their first year in business their pieces are consciously created by women for women and they have hand-selected their suppliers to have a female majority workforce and to match their ethos on sustainability, gender equality and ethics. 
The founders, Katie and Margot, are childhood friends from school, and they only decided to start their brand in the first lockdown. So Samudra is still super new and fresh and needs all the support it can get. They are so passionate about their new brand and getting the word out there, and I'm thrilled to be able to support them in this. All of the pieces double up as swimwear, and I've worn the sports bra a few times in the ocean, as it's actually just super flattering. They also do organic cotton tees with their three-wave logo embroidered onto the chest, which are really, really lovely. The girls have kindly set up a 10% off code for listeners of this podcast. Just enter STATE OF MIND in capitals at the checkout, and you can also get free shipping at the moment too. Please do and go check out We Are Samudra on Instagram and their website, wearesamudra.com. I want to talk about um, painful sex. Um, mm. and I'm trying to sort of like cover lots of areas on this podcast and I'm very conscious that I don't want to leave anything unsaid or alienate certain people. And I already feel like I've spoken about long-term relationships enough and maybe I haven't touched on single people enough. But anyway, um, I'll do my best. But so pain with sex... Um, is that something that you talk about in your, like, do you see lots of patients with that problem? And what would you say are the most common causes for women who experience that? Mm. So painful sex absolutely is something that I work with um, and people present with. The mo- Without um, injury, um, childbirth or illness, or kind of um, diagnosis, we tend to talk about the kind of generalised term for like painful sex is dyspareunia. Um, mm-hmm. But there are also conditions like vulvodynia, so which can be pain in the vulva. Um, and then one of the most common conditions that I see is something called vaginismus, which is when there is a involuntary tightening of the pelvic floor muscles, which make any attempt at penetration um difficult and possible painful so anything Mm. from a tampon to a finger to a penis to a sex toy um, whatever it is and because the muscles are so tense they can't allow any penetration and kind of pushing against those muscles creates pain creates discomfort I think I have that vaginismus what a lovely word um the vaginismus network has the most amazing resources but it's really common and a part of the thing that is so difficult about it i think is we think the stats are something like two in one thousand women but if it is that common why is it not well known about why is it not easily discussed with professionals why is it not informed about and those numbers are really likely to be underreported because of the mm. taboo nature of sex or women's issues. And, you know, we know that smear test um, uptake isn't where it should be, again, because we have this taboo and embarrassment around vaginas and vulvas. And what we know from companies like in charities like the Eva Peel is when they do research that actually a lot of the reasons that people say they are not going for these tests is because they're embarrassed yeah so I think conditions like that and you know like you're describing if some of those symptoms kind of fit with what you're experiencing is 
the difficulty for lots of people is even getting to the point where they understand what's going on with their bodies. Do you, is there a case for just saying you have painful sex because you don't have sex enough? Like, is it, is it like a, like a muscle that we have to <laughs> stretch every now and again? Um, <laughs> we're not really like a muscle that we have to stretch every now and again. What some people, um, might find is if they haven't had many sexual experiences is that it can feel uncomfortable, but it's more, so what we describe the vagina as is the potential space. So in it's kind of natural state, it's basically like a flattened tube. You know, we don't have a fixed kind of space within us. Um, and it is designed to, it's very elastic and it's designed to be able to fit a baby out of, you know, essentially. Um, and, but the muscle groups around it, you know, the PC muscles, the pelvic floor muscles are so important and so strong and they support, you know, everything that's happening in that part of our body, you know, are a massive part of our hips, of our, how we can walk, how we can move, of our core. And if we are tense, if you think about when you tense up, the first thing you do, you know, you lift up your shoulders, you kind of pull your legs in, your stomach in. If we're feeling nervous, if we're feeling tense, we can tense and our pelvic floor can almost be be too tense that it's almost like we're overprotecting ourselves. So we can understand that there's like the anticipation of pain or mm-hmm. feeling nervous or that we want to, we feel that there is expectation on us. You know, the, the reasons can be massive. And also I've seen a lot of people who've had historically painful interventions, for example, like they've had a lot of UTIs or mm-hmm. they've had an STI and there's anxiety like that, or they've had recurrent thrush or cystitis or um, women who have struggled with fertility or had miscarriages or had IVF or pain, you know, um, birth trauma or childbirth. You know, I think it's important we also acknowledge that this isn't necessarily something that people always start with, but can also be acquired. Um, mm. And, you know, it can also be things like not having positive body image. So thinking that your vulva isn't normal or is ugly or isn't everyone else's. And what we know so often is, well, what we know is that there is no normal, inverted commas, you know, there isn't a standard. But Mm -hmm. we are impacted by the images that we see, which are going to largely be on kind of pornography platforms where their vulvas are not representative. And so we get can get really stuck and so much of that can contribute to painful sex or feeling disconnected from that part of our body but also sex sometimes just can be painful it might be a little bit rough or we might not be lubricated enough or it might have been at slightly the wrong angle or our partner might have been bigger than our last partner or um you know or 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 and that's not even including conditions like endometriosis which cause painful sex mm, yeah okay and do you um touching on porn there do you see the porn industry as damaging to our sex lives and sexual health or as a um a positive attribute i don't think that porn is exclusively bad I think that the biggest problem that we have is that it is used as an educational resource because it is the easily, the most easily accessible 
information about sex that people and particularly young people can get without having to ask anyone, without having mm-hmm. to have a difficult conversation, without having to show that they don't know anything or feel scared of judgment. And mm-hmm. what we need to be equipping people with is the knowledge that porn is over here and real sex, you know, sex with a person in real life is over here and there is a huge gap between those things and one isn't representative of the other and that for me is where the biggest problem lies yeah definitely and um what about libido as well because again I know that um you've said previously that it's really uncommon to have an equally matched libido between two sexual partners in a relationship and that it's highly likely that one person will have a higher libido than the other. Um, how do we, I mean, what, what are some methods and some tips that you could give to people who experience that in their own relationship? Because it can be quite difficult and quite challenging, I think. Mm. And it, I mean, when we talk about libido, I mean, what we, what we talk about is sex drive. And, you know, what we now know from yeah. sexual research is that actually sex isn't a drive, it's a motivation. Um, but that, and I think, I think this massively ties into the kind of like desire and arousal conversations. So what we might see is that some people report feeling hornier or more turned on or more easily turned on, for example, at certain points in their cycle. So, Mm. um, it might be that men are waking up in the morning with erections and because they wake up with an erection, which is quite common in a normal part of bodily function, not because they've had a sexy dream but because it's a part of blood flow and it happens in certain stages of sleep but what we understand is that for some people they might then feel hornier as a result of waking up with erection think oh well that would be fun or for women when Mm -hmm. testosterone levels are slightly higher in the mornings that they might feel more turned on but also can we split that from the fact that some people would prefer to have sex in the morning before they start their day. So Mm. before everything kind of starts creeping in and interrupting their headspace, is it that some people are like, do you know what? We can only have sex when possible. So for example, when the baby sleeps or that actually getting to the end of their day is not a time that suits them to have sex because they are exhausted and they just want to climb into bed and sleep. And I would argue that mismatched desire which is probably how I would describe it more than using a term like libido is more common than couples being perfectly aligned and Mm. like in everything else in our relationships we're not really perfectly aligned on in every way and so the best tools that people can have are ones which enable them to encourage responsive desire in more situations so for example going to bed early no screens no interruptions no technology kind of lying facing each other eye contact or more touch or a massage or you know having time for yourselves or um, setting some boundaries about stuff or doing something nice for each other you know or sharing in something together it's it's about really um a colleague of mine called Dr. Karen Gurney, who wrote a brilliant book about female desire called Mind the Gap. And anyone who's interested in this 
you know, watch her TED talk, read her book. It it's the it came out this year. There's nothing more up to date in terms of the understanding. Um, but she talks about improving sexual currency in relationships and that that currency is not necessarily all about sex, but can contribute to us being more open and responsive to sex mm-hmm. with our partners. Um, again, we talk about kind of like avoid sex and approach sex. So we want to be having more of the sex where we think, yeah, okay, like let's be open to this. Let's see where it goes. Not, okay, we have to do this because it's been six weeks and I don't like to get it get beyond six weeks. So let's just kind of get this done and then we can get the box ticked which is habits that lots of couples get into. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of add to that, from my position as someone working in the kind of functional medicine, nutritional therapy space, I see a lot of women with a tendency towards like hormonal imbalances. And Mm. I don't know if it's something that you touch on in your clinic, but personally um you know these days it is so easy to become estrogen dominant as a woman whether that's um because we are surrounded by so many xenoestrogens in our environment and our food and the plastics in our food chain um you know whether that's the topical application of like chemical creams and cosmetics or whether that's to do with our stress response. You know, cortisol has a huge impact on our steroid hormones and our sex mm. hormones. And I I think it is really normal these days for women to just be a bit low on the testosterone side, purely because we are so jacked up on estrogen a lot of the time. And, um, you know, it's, it's so crucial to look at to look at sex from this like 360 degree approach, isn't it? And and to do all the good work that you're talking about with like the mindset and approaching it differently. And, um, and then, but then to also think, you know, am I personally helping myself out in the best way that I can? Am I balancing my blood sugar on a daily basis, for example, which will help my hormone production to be more stable. And I think, yeah, it has to just be like a whole body, especially when it comes to sex drive and libido. Um, it's like a, it has to be like a whole body thing. I mean, mm. I don't know if you agree with that, but... I completely agree. And I, as a therapist, although I'm working with the psychological, look at the whole picture with people. I'm quite holistic. And also, you know, fundamentally, if you feel good about yourself, whether that's from eating well, feeling balanced, good work-life balance, exercise... Um, spending time with friends, good communication, whatever that is, if you feel good about yourself and you're in a good place, you're going to be in a better, more open, more receptive space for sex because you're going to be feeling more confident. You're going to be feeling more settled in yourself. And I think that historically, you know, we have separated sex off from the rest of ourselves and you know, I, I think a big thing that I do is it's about integrating it into the context of ourselves as individuals, integrating it into the rest of our lives. And I see this all the time with people coming in for therapy because they say this time line I've heard again and again and again, I just thought this would sort itself out. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but nothing else in your life and your health, if you had a problem with it, would just sort itself out. If you had a broken arm, it wouldn't just sort itself out. But no, totally. we seem to think that, and I think it's it's to do with this whole nature we have around sex, um, but 
that's problematic because what people do is they leave a problem for longer and what they then have to deal with is not just the original problem itself, but how long it's gone on for, repeated failures, repeated mm-hmm. um, experiences, impact on relationship or impact if they're single, impact on relationships with friends or with others or on dating or preoccupation, taking up headspace, mm-hmm. mental health. And that in itself then becomes almost the thing we need to work through more sometimes than the original problem itself. Yeah. I mean that I've definitely been guilty of that myself because I and I've yeah, I've literally said those those words to myself in my head that like it'll just work itself out because for me in my relationship I went from the kind of honeymoon, really fun period at the beginning where everything's great, very quickly to being very sick for like the last few years. And the person that was my lover quickly became my carer and you know the Mm. dynamic just turned itself on its head and despite having kind of come out of that phase of like being quite poorly and feeling really tired and like obviously not wanting to have sex or anyone touch me because I was like so um focused on just like getting better and being quite kind of um selfish in that regard you then have to then think okay well I am feeling better now, but I I can't just assume that this thing's just going to go back to normal. And for a long time, I just sort of assumed and hoped that they would. Mm. And I'm now at the stage where I'm like, I I need to make I need to make an effort because it's it's like you lose for anyone that's been through like a health trouble or trauma or anything that just you know changes that course of your life. You just lose a part of yourself for a while. And you think that it's just going to come back. And actually, it's like you're a totally different person now and your relationship has changed so much and actually could be stronger because of the struggles you've had. But, you know, that I think that part of sex in a relationship is so important. Um, And, yeah, I feel like you just kick up the backside from (laughs) Kate Moyle just now. (laughs) But I think the thing is, is it changes the meaning of whatever's going whether it's sex whether it's intimacy whether it's touch when you go through something which changes the rest of your life the meaning of that changes and a lot of people describe it a bit like a kind of barrier coming down or Mm. you know a bit like they shut the door on it the meaning of it changes and then you relate to it as a different concept because the meaning changed and then what you have to work at you know irritatingly and frustratingly for a lot of people almost harder is changing the meaning again to something more positive Mm, yeah definitely that makes a lot of sense um so I guess I sort of want to wrap up by you know just chatting chatting generally and and um you know thinking actually like is there anything that I've left out in your mind that is a really important part of your job and a message that you want to get across to people regarding sex I think one of the biggest parts of my job is, apart from offering the kind of private, I suppose, like safe space for people to explore in in the therapy room, is universally across the board psychoeducational. So Mm. offering people fact, myth-busting, straightforward kind of sexual 
advice, but also challenging some of the stuff that we've been taught about sex, which isn't necessarily correct or isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the thing that I would say is if people are thinking about wanting to explore sex is listen to different perspective, listen to different voices. We get tunnel vision. We kind of believe what we've been taught or we've only been taught one thing and then we stick to that. And there is so many more possibilities and voices and perspectives. And Mm -hmm. that would be the one thing I would say to people is listen to podcasts, watch TED Talks, read books, follow sex positive influencers or therapists Mm -hmm. or educators on platforms like Instagram. Yeah, I guess it's a good place for me to ask you how you think technology has played into our sexual wellness over the years and you know the kind of introduction and invention of living a life that's so online Mm. I think it has such pros and such cons one is the accessibility of information it's the access to sex positive influences to therapists to educators to more information but the difficulty is not all the information that is out there is correct or factual Mm. or helpful I think comparison culture is really really I want to say toxic but then I suppose it is toxic I think comparing ourselves to others and a lot of the time when we're comparing ourselves to others it's our internal world versus their external world and their internal world might be completely different, but it's not what we see. Um, but I think that kind of checking in with ourselves that we are surrounding ourselves with positive influences and things that make us feel good, not that kind of help us to constantly criticise because we're good enough at criticising ourselves anyway. Mm. But I think that, you know, sex tech is such a massive growing space. You know, there are such an enormous range of sex toys it's a multi-billion pound business you know it's helped a lot of people to experience pleasure that they wouldn't have known how to otherwise and why Mm. that I don't think is fundamentally a bad thing I think that it's opened up a lot of spaces for people who have more marginalized sexualities who've discovered a sense of community but equally the flip side of it is the tech online kind of tech world sex tech has caused probably not sex tech per se but like the online world has caused lots of problems for lots of other people but it's Mm. again I guess it's everyone's individual relationship with with it yeah definitely I have just thought of one further question I wanted to ask you before I wrap up and it's to do with sex and infertility um and to be totally honest so that the question makes sense for the listeners Um, I'm quite honest about my fertility status online, which is that I need IVF to be able to conceive. Um, Do you think, and this is like a theory that I have, or it's an excuse that I've made, um, do you think that when a woman experiences infertility that her body very cleverly knows that actually she can't get pregnant and on a very 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 basic level sex is to do with procreation obviously it's also to do with the desire and enjoyment and um but do you think that there's like part of our our bodies that kind of knows inherently that because we can't get from a to b anymore we 
don't need to the sort of sex hormone side of things is like shut off or less important for let's say and then opening that up to be a more general question do you come across in your clinic sex and infertility as something coming like together hand in hand and how do women that are potentially experiencing that and going through um infertility deal with the fact that sex might seem just like a bit raw and a bit not not kind of in sync with what they're dealing with in their lives does that make sense mm. no it absolutely makes sense and you know I've shared with you before I've had IVF myself um I have secondary infertility so um I I understand it from both a professional and a personal view and I have done a couple of interviews with the girls from Big Fat Negative and um if anyone's interested we did a interview on my podcast about it because I think it's the side of infertility that doesn't often get discussed. Um, in terms of your body responding, I don't, I suppose, like know enough about the hormones to say. But what I would say as a psychologist is if your motivation, and we know that there are over 237 reasons that people say they have sex, motivations that people have sex from an amazing, my favourite um, study which was done in 2007 by David Buss and Cindy Meston called Why Humans Have Sex and it's about your motivations to be sexual now at a certain stage in their lives lots of people might be having sex in order to try and get pregnant and if there is mm-hmm. a big motivation which is not physically possible then that can change why we want to do it or how we do it and what um, I find a lot of people who have had a window of trying and then actually being like, okay, we're having IVF, so the trying, which hasn't been working for however long or however many years or whatever, isn't working. There's actually sometimes a sense of relief. Like, okay, we can kind of reclaim sex. We can get back to doing it for ourselves for the sake of enjoying yeah. it, for it to be right. fun and not functional. But I think that how we think about sex massively impacts our desire our responsive desire like why we're doing it and for me the why of sex is is the more important part than the what really and I think that probably is the first bit the second bit is I see a lot of individuals women and also men about infertility and sex you know men feeling under pressure to perform to perform for their partner that it's can become very timed, very scheduled, very kind of on cue, that they feel undesired by their partners or that it's kind of, I I need you for what you can help me with this process rather than our relationship or us as a couple. And also I work with lots of people who have experienced miscarriage. So then the idea of sex being something which could risk that pain again can feel something very scary. And mm. kind of going towards sex again can feel emotionally and physically risky or terrifying mm. for lots of people. Um, so I think that there is a lot of conversation to be had around infertility, you know, miscarriage, trying to conceive in, um, IVF and sex. Because it's so often as well is the just got to do this to get through it, to get what we want process that actually so much intimacy and I mean anyone who's had IVF knows that it's not remotely intimate at all 
you know, you are injecting and kind of on scheduled appointments and having intravaginal scans on a regular basis, blood tests, you know, men are having to kind of produce samples in a really impersonal room. Like there is very little that is intimate or sexy about it. And so the idea of them trying to be intimate and sexy again can feel so challenging. Um, but I would really recommend resources like Big Fat Negative. I think they've been, they're just, they bring a sense of humour to it as well. And that was one of the things that I spoke to them about last time was this idea that sometimes you have to bring in a bit of humour to the situation. You have to be able to laugh together, to kind of hold each other's hands, to laugh, to cry, to just be like, wow, this is actually really shit and we didn't think we were going to be here, but how are we going to get through this yeah fair enough okay and a fun question to finish um we know that you're a huge fan of lube what is your favorite brand and um in my head I'm hoping that it's like a natural one because I hate the idea of women putting chemicals up there um it is completely a natural one um they are called yes organics and they are completely natural completely organic and I always say to people you don't want to be putting anything inside you which you don't know what's got in it nothing with like tingle sensations no flavors nothing like that especially because I'm working with lots of people that have experienced pain and discomfort and you don't want anything which causes any irritation so yes organics um have a brilliant brilliant range um they've got vaginal moisturizers washes but they've got lubes oil-based water-based water-based yeah. condom compatible um, can you say the same thing for sex toys then that you that like natural materials and stuff are the ones to look for or not so much there are absolutely um kind of medical silicon um bpa free like sex toys and you know a lot of the time kind of it's about looking to see like what things are made of but there are also yeah you know glass sex toys and things like that that are available for people so there are plenty of options. I work with Lilo as their UK sex expert and they have some great toys, some great options. But mm. what I would say is it's about exploring and like finding what's right for you. But yeah, absolutely. There are there are always options. And there are even um, the brands called Shackrubs and they kind of like do crystal um, sex toys oh, yeah. and things like that. So, you know, there's always an option for everyone. Amazing. So I have to finish the podcast in the same way, Kate. Um, and that's always to ask my guests, what does state of mind mean to you? What does state of mind mean to me? I think it means, I want to say balance. Um, but yeah, and I think balance and freedom in terms of choices. So probably informed choices is what I mean. I've gone a very long way around this answer. Um mm. I think being able to make informed choices, so like choosing like what is best for you and information helps choices. But I think that for me anyway, and in the way that I kind of run my life at the moment, it is not the way that I five years ago thought I would. It's actually really different. Um, but for me, I've kind of tried to be like, okay, is this working and does it feel good? Yes. Like I'm making the informed choices. Is my business going okay? Yes. Could it be bigger and better? Yes. But am I happy? Yes. Am I spending mm. enough time at home or with family? Yes. You know, I think that it's about kind of finding the right fit for you. Yeah. And 
mine currently at least absolutely is not what I thought it would be but it, it feels good and so I'm sticking with it amazing that's such a good answer thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast Kate I think this has been useful for so many of us certainly for me um I would encourage anyone that's got questions about what we spoke about today to reach out to Kate on Instagram at Kate Moyle Therapy, I believe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. And I would um, love to just say if anyone is interested in following up any of the stuff, then the podcast, the sexual wellness sessions, we cover so many of these topics and I speak to a guest about their personal and professional experience of a different area of sexuality every week um and the response so far has been amazing we've covered infertility erectile dysfunction desire um sex positivity asexuality fantasies and for me the reason I wanted to make them was because I felt like they were the conversations I was having so often behind closed doors so I wanted to bring them out into the open yeah amazing I would second that. It's a fantastic series. So go get involved. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning in to State of Mind. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder that We Are Samudra are offering 10% off their sustainable activewear to listeners of this podcast using the code State of Mind. Just head over to wearesamudra.com. And if you have a spare second, please rate and subscribe to State of Mind as it really helps get the word out there about the podcast. Bye bye.